Coming up on today's show, Randy Bachman, the legend himself, will join us to talk about what he's been up to over the holidays and what's coming next. We'll also speak with Sonia Savage, Alberta's Minister of Environment and Protected Areas, about the just transition and why so many people in our province are concerned. We'll also get the latest on the situation in Iran. We'll find out what's going on. He is rock and roll royalty in this country and beyond. He's a living legend, Randy Bachman. This guy had his first hit in Canada almost 60 years ago now. It's mind-boggling to think of the hits he turned out for how long he's been doing it, and he's still as busy as ever. There's a million different things on the go, so delighted that he could take a couple of minutes to check in and let us know what he's up to. Randy Bachman joins us. Randy, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Great. Nice to be here. So, I mean, like I say, you're busy as ever. I get the updates on social media. You'd never slow down. You're playing this show, that show, the radio show slash podcast continues. I mean, you just keep keeping on, hey? There's nothing else to do. <laughs> Is it that so funny? I, I wonder, like, there's people who retire and they can't wait to retire. And then there's people who just, I have no interest in retiring. I mean, is there any, an end in sight or is it just too much fun? It's too much fun. And I've said this before. There's three very important days in everyone's life. The day you're born, the day you know why you were born, like to be a doctor or shoot hoops or play guitar, you know what I mean, or be a policeman or, you know, something like that. And and today, you wake up and it's another important day. And I knew very young, at a very young age, it was music. And I just started to do it when I was about five years of age. And it, it's so natural. I just get up every day and do it. And after a while, you get better than the next guy who doesn't do it as much as you. And uh, they pay you money to play your songs. <laughs> and I pay doctors to give me you know, medicine and plumbers to fix my sink and things like that. That's what the world is all about, you know, finding your purpose and then, and then just doing it and keep on doing it. Uh, and we're so glad you are. Um, last time we talked, and I, I've seen the updates, but I wanted to get the story firsthand because you're such a great storyteller. Last time we talked, you were about to head overseas to reunite with your long-lost guitar. If I remember, it was stolen decades ago. You tracked it down again, found out it was in Japan, and last time we spoke, you were on your way to go get it. Pick up the story from there. What happened with that guitar? Well... It was found in the hands of a Japanese guy named Takeshi, who's kind of a rockabilly guy like Brian Setzer, but he doesn't speak English. So everything was with a translator. Luckily, my daughter-in-law, who married my son, Tal Koko, is Japanese, so she translated for us. So we went to, in the middle of June last year, we went to um, Tokyo, got used to it, because it's a 17-hour time difference. Yeah. And on Canada Day, we were offered to go to the uh, Canadian consulate there by the Canadian ambassador to Japan, who's a guy from Penticton, right? It's really cool. And he said, I've been ambassador here for two years, but we've been shut down because of COVID and all the mandates. We're opening Canada Day. You want to come on Canada Day, July the 1st. Do your guitar switch with the Kishi. We'll film it. It'll be, you know, because we're doing a Netflix rockumentary on this guitar now, on the story, and do it on Canada. So we went and did it on Canada Day, and it was amazing. We broke the internet. It froze yeah. in over 80 countries. <laughs> and we found out hundreds of million people all over the world were following this story because it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing it happening. Is. So you guys did the exchange, played a couple of tunes too, right? We did. And what's amazing, they wouldn't let me meet Takeshi or see my guitar until the switch. It was like a wedding. You can't see the bride until <laughs> you walk down the aisle. They wanted to get my reaction for the camera because they said, you're not an actor. You can't do this twice 
We can't get an actor to do it. So he's going to be playing, taking care of business, singing it fanatically on stage. This is at the Oscar Peterson Theater right there at the Canadian Embassy in Tokyo. It was a very cool place. 285 seats all full. And people were, like, amazed at this thing because Takeshi's a local hero there. Yeah. And um, especially because he'd given me back my guitar. <laughs> and so in the middle of taking care of business, I walk out. You can Google this and see it on, on YouTube. I see him for the first time. We do a handshake on stage. I'm holding the sister, Gretchen. You know, he told me he would trade me back mine if I found its sister. Yeah. So I found one in Loveland, Ohio, two different two serial numbers off of mine. So it was made in the same week. It was basically a puppy from the same litter. Yeah. So I took it and I handed it to him. He has me mine. And we finished playing Taking Care of Business. And when I get my guitar in my hands, I mean, you put your arms around a guitar, you hold it next to your chest. It's like hugging someone. Yeah. She put this guitar around you, and I don't know my reaction, and they still won't let me see it. I just got back from L.A. two days ago. They're, they're filming the, they're editing the film right now. It's going to be done for next year. And they still won't let me see my face. And they say, the way I reacted when I got that guitar was unbelievable. My, my body language, my face, my smile, my tears, hugging the thing, playing it, going, wow, amazing. It was really fantastic. <clears throat> I, I, I want to ask you about that because, I mean, I, I, I've played guitar for, I don't know, 40 years, and I've got my first guitar, and, and uh, you know, it, my children are just slightly more important than that first guitar. I know what it feels like. Um, what, what's, what do you do with the guitar now? Do you, I mean, you got to play it, right? It's hanging on the wall. I play it every day. Yeah. Because when I got it, as you know this, when you get your first guitar, you are hungry and you're copying the Beatles or Hendrix or Chuck Berry or whoever you want, the latest record that's got to you or the latest music, and you're learning it. And I, I, when I was five, I started playing classical violin. So my mother made me practice every morning. Can you imagine this in Winnipeg? <laughs> in the morning at 7.30, up and practicing for a half an hour, and then walking to school and back, and coming back at 4 o'clock and not being allowed to play outside until I practiced another half an hour. Nice. And then it got to be an hour before school, an hour after school. So I'm used to practicing. So when I started playing guitar, my mother kept saying, stop playing that thing. Yeah. Concentrating your schoolwork. And I'm saying, no, I'm used to practicing this much. And I literally, I played it night and day. I wrote all my hit songs on it. Laughing, these done. Uh, she's come undone. You know, no time, no sugar. American woman. I played on all the records. It plays playing all the guitar on taking care of business. And it was it was it was such a part of me for so long, and to get it back was absolutely amazing. And I only had it on around me for five minutes on stage. Yeah, on on, on Canada, it was put in a case and taken back to my room at the embassy. I was staying at the Canadian embassy, which was an amazing, wonderful place. And Ian is a great ambassador. He's just a great guy. And uh, Ian McKay is his name. And I wake up at two in the morning. And I look across the room, and there's the case. And I go open the case. <laughs> and I look at it, and I go, hello, old friend. Boy, it's been a long time. Should we make some music? And I took it out and played it for four hours. I played every song I'd learned on it, and every song I'd written on it. And then when, it was, when I was getting near the end, getting tired, it's about like 4.35 in the morning, I start to play something new. And I say to the guitar, are we writing a new song? <laughs> and I write a riff because they asked me and tell, now that I got the guitar back, 
to see if I could write another hit like American Woman or You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet or Taking Care of Business because it's been a, a, dr- a drought for like 40 years. <laughs> and so we start, I start this riff and I showed it to Tal. Now we're writing the song and filming it with the guitar. It's going to be over the closing credits of this rockumentary, wow. which is going to be called Lost and Found, The Magic Guitar, because it is a magical guitar. How it found its way back to me was incredible, and we didn't know it until we got to Tokyo and interviewed Takeshi and the store that he bought it from, the vintage guitar store, who don't know how it got to the store <laughs> from Dallas, Texas. It's just, it is amazing. It is such a good story. I cannot wait to see the documentary. It's going to be just phenomenal. Um, I, I, we're running out of time here, and i got so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I'm checking out your website. you got a bunch of show dates coming out. I will point out, Randy, they all appear to be in Eastern Canada at this point. I know you were in Western Canada during the holidays. Um, what, what is a Randy Bachman show? I saw one of the promoters was billing it as a guided tour of your greatest hits. I was, I, I was talking to uh, the sports guy here this morning talking about this fabulous show that he's seen somewhere. I can't remember what network he saw it on, where you sort of, you and your guitar, and you just walk through all your songs. What's a Randy Bachman show like these days? It depends. If it's billed as every song tells a story, I start with Shaking All Over and tell how we got our name, the Guess Who, how we got Burton coming to the band, how we wrote these eyes, it goes right through to current. And that's a sit-down show with an audience of maybe five or six or seven hundred, like a theater or or a uh, or a... Um, a casino or something where they're sitting down. And then when I get a, a stand-up rock show or, you know, a festival, I play all those songs, but they're louder. There's not a whole lot of talking. We're just up rocking along with Nickelback or whoever else on the show or Van Halen yeah. or whoever else we're touring with. And so I have several different shows. And sometimes I get asked to just go alone with me and a guitar, very quite intimate, and play for some people for, you know, a, a, a smaller party. And I like doing it all because... I feel so fortunate I've got 18 or 20 hit songs that I could play for people that they know intimately. Yes. And so yeah. Somebody said this to me. I just got back from L.A. three days ago. We were there finishing up the documentary. And boy, and it's raining like mad there. It's terrible. And somebody said to me, if you ask anyone, and ask anybody who's listening to right now, what were you doing 10 years ago today? What were you doing 18 years ago today? Nobody remembers. What were you doing the first time you heard American Woman? What were you doing the first time you heard Yesterday? What were you doing the first time you heard, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name? You know exactly what you were doing. That song brings back memories. So for me to come and play for people, for me, it's a... And I think of every time I've been in Edmonton, every time I've been in Calgary, because I've been everywhere in in these times. And I love going back. I love people coming. And they say, hi, here's our son. He's like 40. Here's our grandson. Here's our great-grandson. And they all love your songs. And it's an amazing thing to to go from be, playing pretty much Edmonton in a tent uh, for backing Bobby Cotola in the Coca-Cola tent for, to 40 people to coming back and playing a casino that's full or playing a festival outdoors to eight or nine or 10 or 12,000 people. It's They're all the same to me. I've always told and I always felt if there's 50 people, you do the same show. There's if there's, if there's just 5,000 or 50,000, or when I did the SARS Fest with the guests who, and there was a half a million people there in Toronto, we were playing with the Stones and ACDC and, and Rush and Tom Cochran and Justin Timberlake. It's the same show. 
It's and they're all fabulous. They're, I've seen a couple of them. They're incredible. You're right. Um, I, I want to ask you about um, Vinyl Tap, which continues. I've got people on the text line. Hey, can I listen to it on demand? There's a bunch of ways you can find it. It airs on Chuck uh, here in Edmonton. Uh, still going, uh, but it. I mean that that's what's what's the future of that? I mean, uh, people just love it so much, Randy. Because we're on commercial radio, we're trying to get a sponsor. Because oh, yeah. it, was, it ran for 15 years on CBC. Where I guess the, the Canadian people and the government sponsored it because it's all a tax-funded right. station. <laughs> and so we're trying to get a sponsor, but we have every Sunday night between five and seven million people. I mean, in the Toronto area, there's almost two million. Uh, in Vancouver, there's a lot. In Calgary, Edmonton, there's a lot of people. Yeah. We've got the, uh, the all the maritime classic rocks around it. So we just need a commercial, and I don't want I don't like a bunch of commercials. I want somebody to say. This hour is presented commercial-free by blah, 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 cars and trucks. Oh, the big ask. The big ask. Okay. Well, I think that's better because, (laughs) well, you're wrong. Okay. Can I be blunt? Radio exists to play commercials, okay? (laughs) And in between, you play music. I mean, be true. Um, To have no commercials and just say this is brought to you by Joe's Trucks or Charlie's Chicken or something like that would get rid of all the local commercials. But I'm not adverse to some of the offering thing, <laughs> calling things. Look, we are a local chicken thing in Edmonton or in Calgary, you know, and we'll sponsor your show. I mean, we're looking for a sponsor because I've been doing it for nothing for a whole year now since we left CBC. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, you're right. It's a massive show with a huge listenership. We've put out the call. Um, let, let's hope that, that call is answered and answered quickly. Hey, Randy, uh, I'm going to ask one more before we go, and it's a good one. A lot of people on the text line saying, what do you listen to now? What does Randy Bachman like in today's music? A lot of people say rock is dead, music today sucks. What's Randy Bachman listen to? Well, I listen to a lot of radio of all different kinds uh, because when I was doing Vinyl Tap, I like to play, you know, I usually have a theme for each show, and I could play 40 or 50 years of rock and roll, like from Little Richard to to, to Lady Gaga, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So I kind of listen to everything, but in listening to classic rock, I notice it's changing, mm-hmm. and it's changing a lot in the States, and they're starting a new format called Then and Now, because there's a new album out by Ann Wilson from Heart. There's a new album from Tom Cochran. There's one from Tears for Fears. There's one from the Eagles. And if you play them now and them then, you're going to be promoting these same bands that are still guys like me that are still around. We just got offered a tour next year with ZZ Top. Oh, cool. And they were our opening act when BTO first started in like 72, 73 down south. We met them in Texas. They were opening act. We brought them to Canada for the first time in maybe 73 or 4. They opened our show, and BTO was going right across Canada. They opened our show in Calgary, Vancouver. We played, I think we played Klondike Days. We played Buffalo Days in Regina. They were our opening act. Nobody knew who they were. All they had it was LaGrange, which still sounds great on the oh, radio. so good, yeah. And so to go back and hook up with Dusty, I mean, with uh, Dusty's gone, but to hook up with Billy Gibbons again and Frank Beard, it would be incredible. <laughs> uh, I would be there, no doubt about it. Randy, I, I, seriously, I could do the whole three hours with you, but I am out of time. Thank you so much. We'll do this again uh, whenever you want, and uh, and we'll see you on the road, sir. Call me when you have more time. Okay, will do. Thank you or very when I, much. When I have more time. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thank Randy. Thanks. Randy Bachman. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, rock and roll royalty, uh, but just a treat to, well, not talk to, because I don't do a lot of talking. I do a lot of listening. He's a fabulous storyteller 
with so much history. I mean, talking about hanging out with the Stones and ACDC and ZZ Top, I mean, wow. Okay, let's get into this. Just transition. That's what it's called. Uh, it's part of the Paris Accord from a long time ago, and the component that talks about what can be done to help those who see their jobs disappear as the world transitions to different forms of energy. But it's that term, and perhaps the thinking behind it will find out that has some people in Alberta very, very concerned and, and pushing back before we even know exactly what it is. So we're going to chat now with Sonia Savage, who is the Minister of Environment in Protected Areas and the MLA for Calgary Northwest. Um, Minister, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here today. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me on your show. So, I mean, not a new topic by any means. It goes back a number of years, but it sort of came to light once again recently in our country. And this weekend, you were quoted, you were tweeting on Twitter quite a bit about about the terminology, right? That that phrasing, the just transition, has you very concerned. Yeah, well, I, I guess to, to take a step back, we, we all agree on some of the same goals, and that's the need to address climate change and reduce emissions across all sectors, including oil and gas. Um, we we see that there is an energy transition underway with more renewables and new and emerging sources of energy entering into the mix. But that is not a just transition. A just transition, as you, as you mentioned, comes out of the Paris Accord, mm-hmm. and it's been uh, picked up by some of the more uh, uh, radical environmental movements, the climate justice movements, some international organizations, international labor organizations, and that means something very different than what the federal government is now talking about is helping workers and helping communities. The just transition is something very different. It's a, it has international meaning, and it means not only moving off of fossil fuels now, rapidly phrasing them, phasing them out and leaving them in the ground, but it also means how to use the energy transition that's underway in a way to, right now in a way to restructure the entire economy and society, how to redistribute wealth and uh, how to uh, undermine free enterprise. So it's a bigger, bigger issue than an energy transition. And it means moving off of fossil fuels rapidly and uh, moving to restructure society. Now, in terms of the phrasing and the terminology, the minister involved, Jonathan Wilkinson, agreed with you this weekend. And he said, you know, that term is problematic. He doesn't like it. He wants to talk about sustainable jobs, not the just transition. He says, no, this isn't about getting rid of oil and gas. Do, do Do you not believe him? Well, I think he's, I think he's very sincere when he says that, but they, he needs to, to bring that up the chain in the government. And, uh, that terminology needs to be scrubbed off of the government websites. Mm-hmm. It's polarizing. It means something different. And if that's not what they mean, if they're not pursuing that international, uh, agenda, then take it off the website and rename it and work with the provinces um, on uh, on moving forward and making sure that we find we attract investment and create jobs and find opportunities in some of the new and emerging and growing areas of uh, energy. I guess the question I have is, and you know, and like I say, the minister agrees with you and says that's a dumb term. We need to stop using it. Um, but he also came out yesterday, or not yesterday, this weekend, and you probably saw him in the media saying, you know what, we're not we're not talking about ending 
the energy and the, and the resources in Alberta. In fact, this is part of it. We want to make sure it's the most emission-free on the planet, all these sorts of things. But, um, you know, he says that oil and gas is actually a big part of the transitional economy, whatever we're talking about here. So, I mean, he, he, he seems to be on the same page as you are in a lot of regards here. Why, why, is, it, why is that terminology such, a, such an issue? Well, and, and uh, we are working together in in the background on a number of things, and we're working quite well together collaboratively on things like hydrogen, carbon capture utilization and storage, critical and rare earth minerals, uh, emission-reducing technology innovation. We're working very well together. But in the background, we still have uh, more radical elements that are saying saying we can't do any of that. We can't. Uh, we, have, we can't even do CCUS because that uh, elongates and lengthens the life of fossil fuels. We can't do hydrogen because we make hydrogen from natural gas. We have more radical elements chirping away in the background. And uh, the word just transition just brings suspicion that that agenda is still there in the background. And I don't think it's long forgotten for people from the province of Alberta when the prime minister very famously said his intention was to phase out fossil fuels back in uh, back in the 20, 2015 election. So we haven't forgotten that, and uh, we're very sensitive to it. We're working well with them on uh, on on bringing in some of these new technologies, and we want to continue to do that. But we want to do it in a framework that's about attracting investment, making Alberta competitive with places like the United States who are putting up enormous incentive packages and creating jobs. We don't want to put it into a package of moving off of oil and gas. And we're just very afraid that that term just transition implies something very different than what our agenda is, which is creating jobs. Yeah, I I guess terminology aside, do you believe the federal government wants to end oil and gas in Alberta right away? Or what's the timeline? Do you think that is the end goal here? I mean, Stephen Harper said, he, he talked about doing it sometime in this century. You know, he said 2050, he said by the end of the century. So, I mean, an industry has talked about it too, but I'm talking about what do you think the federal, like, you, you have these concerns and you say that this just transition means the end of oil and gas in Alberta. Uh, what, what is the concerns? Do you think they want, the federal government wants oil and gas to end in Alberta? Well, there, there's elements that certainly seem to be, uh, to be accelerating, accelerating that with the potential of an emissions cap, which if it's not done sensibly, if it's not done in a way that's possible technologically and economically, it will mean a production cap mm-hmm. and it will be a phasing down of oil and gas. And look, we, 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 uh, oil and gas is going to continue to be needed for decades. Definitely. It'll continue to, to be in the energy mix. In fact, it'll continue to dominate the, energy mix for decades and there'll only be a move off of oil and gas and at a time when there's alternatives when there's reliable affordable technologically viable alternatives and that's going to take decades it won't be uh, if ever um, and hopefully the federal government understands that um, but there are times where they seem to be rushing it faster than the technology and rushing it at a time where we can't bring in bring in some of these changes economically. It's their 2030 yep. targets that are a real concern to the province. They've got targets to be to reduce emissions by 40 
42 to 45% in the oil and gas sector. We do not have the technology to do that. It's uh, the, the cost. Nobody's talking about the cost of doing that. Um, what are we going to replace it with? Mm-hmm. Is there, are there actually reliable, affordable, technologically viable alternatives? So these things are going to take time. And in the meantime, we, we need to, to not only understand that oil and gas is going to continue to be used, but we need to support it. We need to make it competitive because if we leave a barrel in the ground here in Canada, in Alberta, all that's going to do is transfer production of that barrel of oil to somewhere else. That will mean a transfer of production, a transfer of jobs, a transfer of wealth, and a transfer of the the, uh, uh, GHG emissions. It won't do anything for climate change. That's why you don't see places like Saudi Arabia or Iran uh, talking Venezuela, talking about the just transition. You don't hear the United States talking about the just transition. In the U.S., what they're doing is they're bringing in the Inflation Reduction Act to address an energy transition and to make the United States the most competitive place to attract investment to support industries with emission-reducing technology like CCUS. That's the approach we need to be taking in Canada, not trying to, to place all of this stuff under the framework of some so-called just transition that means different things internationally than what they're saying it means here in Canada. In terms of what it means, and I'm almost out of time here, I'll try and squeeze this in. We know that we'll find out more in terms of uh, exactly what the federal government's talking about this spring, but there's been a lot of consultation around this um, with industry, with labor groups, but have you been involved? I mean, you used to be the energy minister. I mean, how, how closely involved in the consultation process has our government been in Alberta? We've been very remote, remote on this. They started consultation, I believe, in 2021. They opened up a consultation. But remember, they're consulting on everything from emissions reduction plan to emissions cap. So we've we've seen some of the pieces. They've put it out to public comment, getting input. I think they've received something like 30,000 comments on it. So we haven't been been involved involved in it. There's been no sit-down discussion. I know there's an effort to put together some of these regional roundtables um, to talk about about uh, energy transition. The problem so far is those regional ta- roundtables proposed were to be subsumed in the, into this broader wording of a just transition, and that's just not game on in Alberta. Uh, Minister, unfortunately, I am out of time, but I do appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Uh, this is a story we haven't talked about in a while, but I think we need to keep shining a light on this. And that that, that fits into the conversation we're going to have, because we used to talk about it a lot more than we do. And I think that's um, an important part of it, just the role that all of us around the world play in keeping this in the forefront. Uh, you might have heard that yesterday the Canadian government slapped another round of sanctions in response to the Iranian situation, which has now um, stretched more than four months, believe it or not. The latest actions target Iranian propaganda. Two Iranian officials, three entities are mentioned by the feds. As you know, protests have gripped Iran for weeks now. It all follows the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. Uh, her head covering wasn't being worn properly. Not that she didn't have one, but she wasn't wearing it properly. That's the official line. Uh, in the meantime, protesters have been imprisoned and sentenced to death, indeed hanged publicly. The charge, believe it or not, is waging war on God. 
it's 2023 and people are being hung publicly in this world for waging war on God. It's it's very hard to wrap your head around for people who live in this part of the world, but it is indeed happening. To help us get a better understanding of the situation, we're going to chat now with Kava Sharuz, who is someone who's been fo- he's heavily involved. He's a lawyer, a senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, and has been a go-to expert on this situation. Uh, Kava, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Very good to be with you. Thank you. So we'll get to these Canadian sanctions in just a moment. First, though, we, we, we haven't talked in a while. And as I said, I read this weekend that two people were publicly hanged for waging war against God. That's the point that the regime pushback has gotten to, right? That's correct. I mean, these are the two latest hangings. Yeah. Uh, there were a number uh, a week or so ago before that. And yeah, as you said in your introduction, waging war on God or enmity with God, I mean, this is really something out of the medieval period, um, and this is what this is what the people of Iran have to live with. Um, so, uh, you know, just just so your listeners can understand um, why people are rising up, it's they're rising up because in the 21st century, you know, Iran has a has a regime that's really something out of the medieval period. And, and, and you know, we mentioned these hangings that have happened already. Dozens more. I mean, hundreds more are in prison, but dozens more, uh, more than 20, facing the death penalty, right? That's exactly right. So the regime, by its own estimates, has has detained like fifteen to eighteen thousand, and that number sort of fluctuates. And yeah, there are about twenty or so that are actually facing the death penalty right now. Um, a couple of days ago, there was a worry that two more men had been sort of moved into um, solitary confinement, which is kind of the, with right. the, the step right before um, heading to execution. Thankfully, that execution hasn't been carried out, but that threat hangs over the head of each one of those 20 or so people. What has that effect, uh, what's been the effect on the protests? They continue, but we don't hear as much about them anymore. Um, these This kind of crack down and indeed people being killed. What's been the uh, impact on the protesters in Iran? Yeah, so the purpose of these executions is really to, to spread fear, and I think they have had some effect. Um, as, as you mentioned, there are fewer protests. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of reasons for that, but I think part of it is, is just the indiscriminate violence that the regime uh, unleashes. Part of it is, is also, you know, we just hear less about them because the, the regime shuts down the Internet and doesn't allow news to, to get out. But uh, what I see when in... Uh, you know, in online conversations and what I hear in my conversations with people inside the country, uh, it's just this fury that's building. Each one of these executions actually makes people far more angry, and I think this is going to erupt um, in large numbers once again pretty soon. I think there just needs to be another spark for you know, getting people on the streets. Where does the international community fit into this? I know, I mean, it was, a, it was, I mean, for lack of a better term, a real cause celeb, and and then there was the World Cup and the stance taken by uh, the soccer players there. Um, but you don't see as much of that in the headlines here in Canada or on CNN. It's it's fallen out of the international spotlight. Where does that, where does that need to be? I mean, is that part of, as you say, the uprising getting reignited? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Regrettably, you know, attention spans tend to be shortened. They've moved on to other things. Um, and that's actually exactly what the Iranian regime wants. They want people to look elsewhere so that they can crack down much more quickly, much more efficiently, and they can kill people without any real repercussions. So, you know, there have been announcements of sanctions, as, as you mentioned, by Canada mm-hmm. and others. Um, that's obviously good, but the international 
focus needs to remain on the story because these protests, um, they've, they've dwindled a little bit in numbers, but they're, you know, that fury is still there and the threat is, and, and the regime is still under severe threat. Um, and, and it's going to lash out in all sorts of ways. I, I mean, last time we spoke, you actually said you thought that the, the regime could potentially, um, be altered forever, if not gone, uh, as a result of what we're seeing right now. Do you still mm-hmm. feel that way? I absolutely do. I think this regime will fall. Um, it's not going to be something that happens immediately, like in the next two months or anything. But, you know, the the anger that you've seen from the Iranian people and the absolute clarity with which many, many people have spoken in saying that we don't want this regime anymore, it just makes this regime unsustainable. Add to that the pressures uh, from the international community, add to that the sanctions that are just kind of starving the economy of this country. This this powder keg cannot cannot exist for much longer. It's going to explode. And the people have very clearly said that they want this regime gone. So uh, I think that's going to happen, uh, perhaps not in the immediate term, but certainly in the medium term. You know, that's interesting to hear you say that, because, I mean, I, I heard about the sanctions yesterday. I was kind of like, okay, that's great, but I, I don't know if they're doing anything. You say they are. Hey, I mean, the sanctions, what the, what what the world community is doing is actually having a meaningful impact on this? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a combination. I mean, the, the sanctions that were mentioned that were imposed yesterday by Canada are, are sanctions on individuals and particular institutions. There are much broader, particularly U.S. sanctions on the Iranian economy. But every one of these sanctions is effective in the sense that it uh, imposes a further cost on the Iranian regime and its officials who are trying to carry out this kind of brutality. Um, they are forced to think twice. And I think over time, this is going to create cracks within the system that uh, protesters can then can then use to sort of break the system apart. Can and should the international community do more? Is there more they could do? There's always more to do. Uh, I've been saying this in interviews for the past few months. Iran's regime is an apartheid regime. It is a gender apartheid regime, and in many ways, it's a religious apartheid regime. It ought to be treated the same way South Africa was treated in the 1980s. Um, it's got to be isolated diplomatically completely. And I think the international community needs to recognize that it's time for this regime to go. Our leaders need to say that, and they need to sit down and start talking to opposition figures um, and trying to figure out how to move this uh, move this revolution along. Um, and I guess the last one here, and it's a question on the text line from a couple of people. And uh, what can we as Canadian citizens do to lend our support to the protesters and those trying to push back against this regime? It's an excellent question. And the answer to it is something that we talked about a few minutes ago. International focus seems to have moved on to yeah, other things, but the protesters desperately need uh, international attention. So what ordinary Canadians can do is to talk about what's happening, write to their MPs, post about it on social media. It seems like such a minor thing, you know, putting out an Instagram post or uh, writing a tweet about it, but it really matters because the accumulated um, international pressure really forces politicians to act, it forces the media to, to keep the spotlight of the story, and it really does help the revolution. Well, I mean, uh, that that's good to hear, and that's easy to do, and we will continue to do it. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate being here. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.